The Old Testament reading is taken from the book of Genesis. Selected verses from chapters 6, 7 and 8. The story of Noah. When people began to multiply on the face of the ground and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that they were fair and they took wives for themselves of all that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in mortals forever, for they are flesh. Their days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God went into the daughters of humans who bore children to them, these were the heroes that were of old, warriors of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth and that every inclination of thoughts in their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the sight of the Lord. These are the descendants of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the the earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. For my part, I am going to bring a flood of waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. The six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventeenth day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great but deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. The rain fell on the earth for Forty days and forty nights. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, domestic animals, wild animals, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all human beings. Everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Human beings and animals and creeping things and the birds of the air. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those that were with him in the ark. 
At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent out the raven. And it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent out the dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set its foot, and it returned to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took it and brought it into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf, so Noah knew the waters had subsided from the earth. Then God said to Noah, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives and every animal, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out of the ark by families. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing odour, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind, for the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth, nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is taken from 1 Peter 3, starting at verse 13. Now who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, and do not be intimidated. But in your hearts sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear, so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for doing good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water, and baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. This is the word of the Lord. 
I don't know about you, but I love a good story. If it's well told and the moment is right, I can so enter into the world of a good book that the real world disappears for a while. And I find myself living the lives of the characters on the page in front of me. Just recently, I've been spending quite a lot of time in the ninth century, as I've been reading my way through Bernard Cornwell's epic version of the life of Alfred the Great and his battles to establish a kingdom for his descendants, a kingdom of all the English-speaking peoples in the face of wave after wave of Danish invasion. Well, I'd certainly recommend these books if you like historical fiction, and I don't think it's too much of a spoiler if I let on that Alfred is, in fact, ultimately successful in building his dream of a Christian Saxon kingdom for all the lands, south of Scotland, east of Wales. We are, after all, living today in England and not Daneland. However, I also think it's fair to say that whilst on the one hand Alfred is entirely successful, on, a, on another level he, he fails completely. He wanted this kingdom to be ruled over by his descendants, and yet many of the kings who succeeded him were not his direct descendants. Many had decidedly Danish names, from Canute to Harold to the Norman or Norsemen conquest. But while Alfred may not have secured his kingdom for his direct Saxon descendants, he did secure his kingdom because he told the story of the idea of a nation called England. And he told it so compellingly that in time, even those who originally opposed it, the Danes, came to be its strongest defenders. And this is the thing about stories. They have power to give shape to the real world. So I can tell you a story of one nation called England and of how it came into being. I can tell you a story of Christian kings for a Christian country and of how that story took hold, not just in England but across Europe, giving shape to the political landscape that echoes down to our own contemporary context of sovereign nation-states, two great wars, political and economic union and Brexit. Arguably, all these things came into being because Alfred the Great was so consumed by this story that he was able to speak it into being in ways that lasted a thousand years. One of the interesting areas of Alfred's story that Bernard Cornwell explores at some length is the difference between the god of the Christians and the gods of the Danes. The Danish gods ask nothing of their followers other than that they keep them amused. There's nothing that Thor wants more than to see a fine warrior fighting for glory and then taking his reward in women and silver, whereas Alfred's god, the Christian god, demands duty and laws and sacrifice to the higher ideals of the emergent holy nation. And the stories that are told about these gods, from the Norse pantheon to the Holy Trinity, give shape to the lives of those who follow them and the communities that they construct. And it is this world of competing stories, divergent ideologies and conflicting dogmas, 
that gives us our way into our reading this morning from 1 Peter. And specifically to those two verses which have been described by almost unanimous consent as, and I quote from one of the commentaries I was reading this week, one of the most difficult texts in the entire New Testament. Close quote. I'm referring, of course, to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. So let's hear them again now. One of the most difficult texts in the entire New Testament. He, this is Jesus, was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water, and baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you. Well, did you spot them when they were read out for us in our reading a few moments ago? Did they jump out at you with a large question mark, or perhaps even an exclamation mark, hanging over them? Maybe. If you have an Anglican background, you found yourself reflecting on the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. Or maybe you found yourself thinking, of the medieval artwork depicting the ancient doctrine of the harrowing of hell. The belief that in the time between his crucifixion on Good Friday and the resurrection of Easter Sunday, Christ descended into the underworld of the dead to release from hell's fires the righteous women and men of the Old Testament. Although, do you like these pictures. I just thought I'd illustrate it a bit with a bit of artwork and things. Um, I remember going a few years ago to the Globe Theatre in London. Uh, Liz and I go every year. We've managed to go to at least one, if not more, performance every year since it opened. Uh, We went to see the Globe Mysteries. I think, Ruth, you and Ian came with us to see the Globe Mysteries that year, didn't we? We all went together. Uh, This was an updated take on the medieval mystery plays that were so popular in the Middle Ages. Three hours of biblically-inspired drama took the audience on a journey from creation and fall to the nativity and the massacre of the innocents to the crucifixion and then, of course, to the harrowing of hell. When Jesus faced down a variety of comedically evil demons to rescue Noah and Adam and Eve from their fiery fate. Well, it's there in the Globe Mysteries, it's there in the medieval mysteries, it's there in the medieval uh, artwork, it's there in the, the creed. The thing about the harrowing of hell is it isn't really there in the Bible. It has a strong tradition within Christianity. But if you look closely at the text itself, it's not obvious that this is what it's saying, that you know, after, after the crucifixion, Jesus pops off down below and then pops back up again. The grammar of our verses from 1 Peter would seem to imply that it is the resurrected Christ who is making a proclamation 
to those spirits who are imprisoned. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. This is a post-resurrection proclamation to those who are imprisoned, if you follow the grammar. It's only when these verses are forced alongside a few other texts from elsewhere in the New Testament that have their own meaning in their own contexts that the doctrine of the harrowing of hell starts to emerge. And one of the problems with this belief that Jesus made a journey to the depths of hell on Easter Saturday is that it seems to deny the truth of the crucifixion, which is that Jesus really died. It implies that instead of really dying, he just kind of temporarily vacated his earthly body whilst it was having a lie down in a tomb to pop down on some kind of celestial rescue mission, only to make it back just in time to re-inhabit his body on Sunday morning at the resurrection, which I'm afraid, according to the early church fathers, is actually a heresy. Rather, and I think perhaps more helpfully, The point that the author of 1 Peter is trying to make here is that the crucified and resurrected Jesus announces God's judgment on all those spiritual powers which exist in the world in rebellion to God and which cause so much evil in the world by working to release all of those who are currently held captive in the hell of their own minds and circumstances. So we move to the story of Noah, which is rather beautifully painted there as something approaching a Viking boat with a figurehead on the front. Well, this all becomes a bit clearer as the author moves on to speak about the story of Noah, which he offers up as an allegory of the way in which Christ, through the church, rescues people from the waters of destruction that would otherwise overwhelm their lives. For the author of 1 Peter, Noah's Ark becomes a symbol for the church. You can see it, can't you, really? A little bit arc-shaped. We've got walls and a a base. Maybe if we had a pointy roof, you could turn us upside down, but we don't, so let's not do that. It is the church, according to the author of 1 Peter, which rescues people from the waters of destruction. It becomes a a symbol of ark and church together, being the community of God's people through whom salvation comes to the earth. And so the story of Noah and his ark becomes a foundational story for those Christians who are called to be a faithful minority in a world that often seems hell-bent on its own destruction. And so we're back at the power of stories to transform the world. You see, the stories we tell about our gods will give shape to the communities we construct in their service. And this is true whether that community is a church or a nation-state. Thinking again about my Bernard Cornwell novels for a moment... For Alfred the Great, as for much of Christendom, the church and the state were synonymous as the stories of God and the stories of country became fused. In the Jewish foundational mythology of the Hebrew Scriptures, 
their God became synonymous with their king. And they believed that their God was higher than all the other gods of the competing nations, just as their king was the king over all the people he ruled. So the ancient Jews told their stories to deconstruct the competing stories told by their neighbors and their enemies. It's well known that many cultures have their flood narrative. And certainly, the Babylonians, who conquered Israel in the 7th century before Christ, carrying off the scribes and the priests and others into exile, have their own flood story. You can uh, read it if you go to the British Museum, just around the corner from where we are this morning. Uh, it's been on display in Beijing recently. I'm not entirely sure that this tablet is back in London yet. I'm, I'm, I, didn't, I meant to go and check, but then I didn't. It's a, it's a story called the Gilgamesh epic, which is itself a retelling of an even earlier flood narrative called the Epic of Atrahasis. Well, it was this Babylonian version of the flood narrative that the ancient Jews encountered when they were taken into exile in Babylon. And in the Babylonian story, the great gods become angry with humans and decide to flood the earth and kill all the people living there. However, one of the gods rebels and tells a human being called Utnapishtim to build a boat to keep the living things alive on the earth. The boat is built, and the rains and the floods come to destroy all living things. And the flood is so severe that even the gods become afraid, and they retreat up to the heavens and have a discussion about whether they actually regret their decision to unleash such violence on the earth. Meanwhile, Utnapishtim's boat floats above the flood and eventually lodges on a mountain. So he sends out a dove and then a swallow to see if there's any dry land, but they come back to him. And then a little bit later, he sends out a raven, which finds lands to live on and therefore doesn't come back, and he knows then that the floodwaters are receding. Utnapishtim then lets out the animals and the livestock uh, that he's had on his boat and sacrifices a sheep. And the gods smell the smoke of the sacrifice. They realize people are still alive on the earth and they come down to have a look. And the chief of the gods, Yah, is furious because he still wants all living things destroyed. And the gods then have a discussion about the proportionality of the flood as a punishment for human depravity. Were humans really so evil that they needed wiping out in this way? And in the end, Utnapishtim and his wife are made into gods themselves. You can see, can't you, how this story directly lies behind the Noah story of the book of Genesis, which was written in Babylon during the time of the Jewish exile. But I'm sure you can also see that there are some significant differences, mostly to do with the nature of the gods, and what is significant about the Noah version of the flood story is not whether or not it actually happened, but why it is told the way it is, and what it tells us about the God that the ancient Jews believed in. The question that's being explored by this story is, was the Jewish God, like the gods of Babylon, to be regarded as a violent and capricious God? hell-bent on punishment and capable of overkill? Does humankind only survive because someone betrays the will of the supreme God to rescue a fortunate human being? Well, no, says the Jewish story. That's not the way we want to tell the story of how the gods 
or our God, deals with human evil. So in the Genesis version, the flood is, predict, is, is uh, depicted as an entirely proportionate and appropriate response to the sinfulness of the humans on the earth. It kind of goes at great pains, really, to try and make that point. And Noah survives with his family, not because he's just lucky, but because he was righteous and deserving of God's mercy. We have to hear the Noah story, you see, against the background of the Babylonian flood story. We have to realize that the Noah story is told the way it is in order to undermine or deconstruct the view that the gods are capricious and given to random acts of violence. The God of the Jews may not yet be the all-loving, non-violent deity that he becomes in certain strands of Christianity. But, says the Noah story told in Babylon seven centuries before the time of Jesus, he is at least just and proportionate, unlike the Babylonian gods who are vindictive and capricious. And the twist at the end of the Noah story, hints at further theological development still to come in the ongoing Jewish quest to fathom the nature of God. As God says that he's not going to do that again, wiping out humans on the earth and sparing only the righteous few didn't work, didn't solve the problem. And so, if we'd read on, we would have heard how God's shining warrior's bow is placed across the heavens after the rain, the rainbow, a symbol of God's commitment to never again destroy all life on the course of the earth. So by this way of understanding it, the Noah story is a bit like that of Alfred's story of England. It's a story told to define a culture. It's a story that explores the nature of what it is to be a people chosen and saved by God from the waters of chaos that otherwise overwhelm the world. It, and it's a story that transcends its original historical context, such that people living thousands of years after it was written in lands never heard of by its author can still hear that story and proclaim that it speaks to them in some way as the God that they worship. And part of this appropriation of the Noah story into the Christian tradition happens through its use in our confusing verses from 1 Peter this morning. In a nutshell, what I'm suggesting is going on here is that in 1 Peter, we find a repeat of what happened in Babylon. In Babylon, the Jews heard and then deconstructed the Babylonian story of the flood by retelling it. And in 1 Peter, we have a Christian deconstruction of the Noah story. You see, for the author of 1 Peter, the Jews in Babylon hadn't gone far enough in their reworking of the Babylonian flood narrative. And this, of course, was because they hadn't known the story of God revealed in Christ Jesus. They hadn't known the story of salvation enacted in baptism. They hadn't known the story of God made flesh in the person of Jesus. They hadn't known the story of a God who dies on a cross and defeats death to lead his people through death to eternal life. So 1 Peter tells its readers that in Jesus, the forces of evil that would overwhelm all life have been robbed of their power. Because in Jesus, life continues to reassert itself. And it does so through the faithful people who follow Jesus. 
who survive the waters of the flood by passing through them as they pass through the waters of baptism. The theological point here is that those who die with Christ in the waters of baptism are also raised with Christ to new life. The waters do not overwhelm them. They rise from the depths of the baptismal waters to bear living witness to the Christ story of life from death. In essence, we, the people of God, become the ark. Rising above the waters that would threaten to drown us, to keep alive the story of a God of love who is not like the other gods of vengeance and violence and overkill. Well, we each of us live by our defining narratives, and we construct our lives around foundational myths. Did you know we're the only species that creates legal fictions? Stories that carry force in the real world. We're about to do it as a church. We're about to become a charitably incorporated organization, which is a legal fiction. This church will exist as a legal body, which has no corporeal essence, but carries legal force. Philip can tell you all about it if you want him to. But we're the only species that constructs stories and then makes those stories real. We're also the only species to sin. We're the only species to believe in God. The only species to take the transcendent and clothe it with words until it takes form in our midst as words, perhaps the word, becomes flesh. And so we spin our stories and then we live by them and we live them into being. And the only question we have to address, really, in life is which story it is we're going to live by. And 1 Peter invites us to live by the story of Christ to live by the story of one who goes into the grave to redeem death, who goes under the waters to emerge victorious, who offers us life in the face of the deluge of pain and suffering that would otherwise overwhelm all hope on the face of the earth. One Peter offers us a comprehensive deconstruction of the mythological view of a wrathful God who punishes. And it challenges all those who would still construct life and faith on the basis of violence and vengeance. There is no place in this view of the world for ISIS. There is no place in this view of the world for the Crusades. 1 Peter's reworking of Noah's stories reworking of the Babylonian flood story directly challenges all forms of religious extremism which would seek violence as the answer. The notion of a wrathful God is transformed into the concept of a suffering God who deals with human sin not by wiping out the sinful but by forgiving them. So how do we live this story into being? How do we incarnate the story of Jesus in our own lives? Well, which stories, I wonder, will define our existence in this world and which of our defining stories desperately need deconstructing through the faithful retelling of the redeeming story of Jesus? For some of us, these will be intensely personal stories where we find ourselves swamped by floods of guilt, 
overwhelmed by worthlessness, or drowning in depression? Do you ever find yourself repeating to yourself the mantra, I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough, I'm an idiot, everybody hates me. I do hope it's not just me. These defining stories are not the story we are invited to inhabit in Christ, who has overcome the darkness that would overwhelm us, who helps us to rise above the floods that would drown us. For some of us, the stories we live by are stories of anger and retribution. I'm thinking of the young teenager known to me who cannot control his temper and punches out at people and things at any opportunity because he has taken deep within himself a narrative of hatred of the other. Seeking meaning and justice for the wrongs that have been done to us. I get it, I really do. But this is not the story we're invited to inhabit either. For some of us, these will be stories that get written in the wider world of politics and policies as we seek to work out which vision of our common life we want to seek and see being spoken into being in our midst. Do we want a national narrative built on violence and retribution? Is this the God that we want to worship? Would you press the nuclear button if somebody entrusted it to you? Which story we live by will affect every area of our lives, from how we see ourselves, to how we see others, to who we will vote for on June the 8th. And the invitation of 1 Peter is to make our story the story of Jesus Christ, who deconstructs all the stories of violence and retribution, and who rescues all those who are imprisoned in their spirits, in the living hells that humans are so good at making for themselves. 1 Peter invites us to inhabit a story which brings life where there is death, and which tells of one who has ultimate authority over all principalities and powers. And we do not do this alone. We are invited to find our place in the community of faith, the ark of safety that can carry those of us who would otherwise be overwhelmed, because we are called to watch over one another. And in the name of Christ, we are called to offer salvation to those who are drowning. God, you have called us to be amongst those who will live into being the story of your kingdom, the offer of your renewal, your salvation, your active love. And we know that we cannot live it until we receive it. And so we pray this morning, firstly for ourselves and for each other, that in your mercy and your grace, in your blessing and your healing, you will meet us where we are, 
with our strength and our delight and our joy in being alive and in the dark and hurt places where we are afraid, where we are shamed, where we are powerless, where we doubt you and ourselves and feel paralyzed. And we know that the stories we tell ourselves are the stories we all tell ourselves. And we pray that you will redeem and transform them, leading us ever deeper into your love and your life so that we may live your love and your life ever more fully in a world that longs to hear and discover the possibility of hope and renewal. And we bring our prayers for all those who today are trapped in hell. For those we have heard about in Palestine. Caught in prison, caught in the complexities of those societies. Caught in a place that seems to have no hope. Caught in a context of violence. And we pray for the coming of the new life of resurrection that will bring hope and love and choice. And what we pray for that context of violence, we pray for so many others. For everywhere we look, we see societies torn apart. We see the use of violence to impose the will of those who are afraid. We see the use of violence by those who feel hopeless and see no other possibility. And we see the hell that it creates. We pray for those who can see no way out and we remember in particular the children who are trapped in those contexts. Children who have been bereaved, who have been wounded, whose lives are already damaged beyond repair to any human standard. And we pray for the women raped and abused We pray for men taken and forced into becoming fighters. We pray that in those hells, you will come to set free. And you will come in the shape of your people, bringing peace and possibility and reconciliation. We pray for those trapped in the hell of hunger. For those who have had to leave their homes because of the famine and the drought. For those who do not know how to make it different. 
for those who despair and for those whose bodies suffer because the nourishment that they need is not there. And we pray that you will come into that hell in the shape of your people of goodwill and good courage and bring the hope of renewal and freedom, of life and light, of food and drink. We pray for those trapped in the hells of the refugee camps, of those who have moved across continents and who are caught up, not knowing where to go next, not knowing what to do, those who are trafficked, those who are abused, those who are afraid. We pray for those who are affected by the coming of the refugees and also feel themselves trapped and afraid. And we pray that you will come into this hell and bring your freedom. And you will come in the shape of those of goodwill and hope who will refuse to believe that this is how the world should be and will work to make it different. We pray for those trapped in the hell of their own distress, those whose bodies are so painful or so damaged that they don't know how to go on, those whose minds trap them in depression, in psychosis. And we pray that you will come to them in their hells, bringing comfort and strength bringing new life and that you will come in the shape of people with skill and compassion and wisdom who can offer words and actions that will change things. We pray for those trapped in the hells of addiction who cannot break free of the pool of the drink or the drugs or the sex or the debt or the gambling or all the other things that can hold us and oppress us. And we pray that you will come into those hells and bring hope and self-confidence and the healing that is needed to overcome. And that you will come in the shape of people who love and support and care and refuse to give up and who will not enable destructive behavior. Our Lord, we see the pictures of you harrowing hell. And they are touching and they are amusing and they are intriguing, but they are far from us. And then we realize the hells around us and sometime the hell within us. And we know that we need your victory, your freeing, your presence, 
And we know, too, that in your grace and mercy, sometimes we can become the agents of your victory and your freeing and your presence. And so we pray, take what we offer. Take our praying, take our living, take our faith. And even when all of these are small and weak, we thank you that you work in ways that surprise us and challenge us and that your work depends not on us, on our strength, on our faith, or even on our prayers, but on your love. And in faith in your love, we bring you our prayers. Amen.